everyone. Today is January 31st, 2013. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Bill Armstrong, who is professor of anatomy and neurobiology uh, at the University of Tennessee Health Sciences Center. He's also the director of the Neuroscience Institute there. His laboratory focuses on physiological mechanisms of neurosecretion in the hypothalamo-neurohypophysial system. Am I saying that right? Hypophysial yep. system. That's how you say it. Exactly. Hi, Bill. Hi. Okay, around the room we've got Nicole Witcha. Hi. We've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. We've got Todd Troyer. Hello. And me, I'm hosting Salma Qureshi. Um, and so Bill has many distinctions. One of them is that he's our first repeat guest. Uh, last time he was here back in 2008, we had a detailed discussion of the firing patterns of vasopressin and oxytocin releasing cells of the supraoptic and paraventricular nuclei of the hypothalamus. And um, I encourage all of you out there to find that podcast in our archive. It's no longer available on iTunes because iTunes um, only keeps the most recent 50 in its queue. But it is at our website um, under the archive link. So I everyone go check that out. So I want to um, give center stage today to one of the things that we didn't get to last time, which is um, Bill's role as an innovator. So in 1988, Bill published the paper introducing um, the intracellular biocytin labeling technique, which has since become a fundamental tool for linking functional and structural studies of neurons throughout the brain. So Bill, can you... Um, set the stage for us. So there were there were other methods for filling recorded cells at the time, some of which had been, I guess, developed right alongside you in, in your department. Um, so what were the particular questions and constraints that drove you to push for this new tool? Um, yeah, so I thought it was important that I, the cells be identified as either oxytocin or vasopressin, and there wasn't a lot of data that suggested that, um, for example, that you could tell them apart except vasopressin cells if they fired in this unique phasic pattern that they have, long bursts, about 30 seconds, and comparable interburst intervals. If you saw those, you could be pretty confident you had a vasopressin cell, but otherwise, we didn't know. And there were, that was a did not account for all the vasopressin cells. We already kind of knew that. it was The population was too low, so they don't all do that spontaneously in the slice. So we wanted a way to identify the neurons to do lots of different things, correlate their morphologies as well as um, I mean, compare their morphologies as well as compare their electrical properties. Ultimately, as I was talking about earlier today, to determine whether they change as a function of the activation of the hormone state of the animals in the case of oxytocin, like during reproduction. Um, so, Charlie's uh, worked in Steve Katai's lab, which had been one of the innovators of HRP, and Charlie uh, expanded on that, and was was I was keen to do that, but. At the same time, I knew that I wasn't going to probably be able to identify the cells immunochemically with HRP, but I wanted to do it anyway because it was a great technique and wanted to fill the cells. And Charlie was instrumental, actually, in helping me learn intracellular recording with sharp electrodes, but it turned out that I could not get the cells, um, the, the magnocellular neurons, consistently with electrodes that were less than about 100 megaohms in resistance, which is pretty, pretty high back then. So these were very small tips. And um, so when I would put HRP in there, I wouldn't, I didn't really get any out, not consistently. It's um, a big molecule. It's a big molecule. 40,000. 40,000 molecular weight. So there was that. Now there was, an, it was, a, there was another dye at the time that was, had been developed by Bill Stewart, which is Lucifer Yellow, which was very popular actually at the same time. For, but it was fluorescent. People liked it because it was fluorescent. Um, and it was really bright, and they, they could take pictures of it. It wasn't good for doing the kind of studies that Katai's lab was doing, where you were, you were tracing axons for millimeters and drawing their collaterals or full dendritic patterns of, of pyramidal cells. But I thought it would be okay for what I wanted at the time, which was immunochemistry, double labeling of these to determine which cells were oxytocin based present. So this for yellow worked, and I would inject the cells, and they would immediately get really broad action potentials and look sick. And uh, so we, I tried it a couple of different concentrations, and that was even if you weren't illuminating them. Yes, like if you're illuminating them, you get this not phototoxic. No, if you illuminate them, they'll just die right away. If you illuminate them very far, I mean that happens really fast. But if you just record from them, everybody had, who had used it I talked to had the same experience. The first thing you saw was action potential broadening. So that was the first indication, and then action potential gets. Good short, but it would not die. It would stay that way for a long time. Right. And and uh, in fact, we weren't even illuminating them in the slice. 
we were looking after we were done. So, and it was it was bad, and um, I thought it was bad. Other people thought it was okay, but not that many. Most people that I knew that talked to said yes, yes. There's a, there's some problems with that. So we never could solve it. But at the same time, I was doing a lot of immunochemistry, just straight immunochemistry of different things, and using this ABC technique. And I don't know what possessed me, but I decided that um, so I can still remember telling Charlie and Richard Penny that I was going to fill cells with biot some kind of form of biotin, and Richard saying, uh, well, you have to worry that it's going to mess up the cells and stuff. And I said, yeah, like Lucifer Yellow. <laughs> I said, I'm going to try it anyway. And so I tried some stuff, um, two or three different forms that were not very water-soluble, unfortunately, because they were used to conjugate biotin to... To antibodies and things like that. And I should have known they weren't going to work because you couldn't put them in high enough concentrations, and they didn't work. And uh, right around this time that I was trying that, this this neurosurgeon started in the lab. His name was Kyoi Horikawa. And I literally, he was he hadn't done any intracellular recording yet. Well, he'd maybe done a little bit, but we were, I was talking to him about this project, and I was saying that I was getting frustrated and I still think something should work and we literally have the Sigma book open and we're looking at anything that had Biden, hydrazide, all these different ones, succinamide, all these things. And then there was bisitin and he just goes, that one, you know. And he said, let's try that one, you know. So I looked at it and uh, it was the only one that didn't have another name attached to it. So I thought it could be okay. It's just regular bisitin. And then I looked. What at do you mean team. another name? Like hydrazide or uh, succinamide. Or, but it was biotin with some amino acids. Yeah, it is lysine. It is it is lysine. It is a lysine biotin complex. But it's really small. It's like uh, four hundred and twenty. Oh, I see. That was the logic. Was that those other things are big? They're big. Yeah, so what was your? They're kind big of? and they're not water soluble. Uh -huh. right. So so we tried that and. Um, and uh, I, I, I did the recording. I actually injected the first cell. I don't think many people think that. I think they think Cure did. But I will say that I did do that. On the record. But he was there with me because he hadn't been recording very much. And um, I think you might have, Charlie might have been the first person to see a filled cell, possibly, outside my lab. Anyway, because I was excited when we did it. We just threw avid and fluorescein on the slice afterwards, just like we were doing immunochemistry. You fixed the slice, threw avid and fluorescein. And it just worked. And I wish I could say that it didn't work and we struggled with it for six months. And Or I, or the other thing, it worked that day and never worked again, which <laughs> always happens with people. But it, none of that's true. We didn't struggle with it. It worked right away. We varied the concentration. We messed with it a little bit, usually going down instead of going up in the percentage. And um, the, the odd thing about it was it didn't seem to matter whether we gave hyperpolarizing or depolarizing current. We tried both. We always labeled the cell. But if we didn't do anything, we didn't tend to label the cell. So it didn't seem like it was just bulk flow. Never quite figured that out. But at the same... So that, so it worked. already know now? No. Nobody... You know, a lot of people don't use it that way anymore because they just stick it in their patch pipettes, as do we. So... At the time, um, it could acquire different charges depending on it. On the electric field? The electric field. That's kind of what we wondered. And um, I was confused about it because I didn't know much about chemistry. I still don't really. So, But it bothered me just the same. It is a zwitter ion, as they say. So it can switch its charge with pH. But. Um, Almost at the same time when that was happening, and we, were, we I wrote the paper with Kioi, and Kioi did most of the injections after that, and he did a, a lot of injections at hippocampus, and he was he was absolutely like possessed to do injections. He became pretty good at recording, I think, really, and he was really dedicated to it. He really loved doing it. And I was telling Salma earlier that one of the things I remember, I would come in, and if he was having a problem, he would just look up for me, and he'd say, I can't catch them. I can't catch them. You know, and he, you could hear the... Buzz going on. Do you know where he is he now? He's just like a he's back in. Uh, he's a neurosurgeon. Neurosurgeon. And he went back to neurosurgery in uh, in um, Okinawa, and became. You know, I don't know if he does any. I checked for his name a few times in PubMed for regular science. I don't think he does it. But who knows? Maybe he's listening. He could be. Anyway, he was a great guy in the lab. He was really personable. Worked really hard, and I had no issues giving him first authorship. He did way, you know, by far the most part of the work, really. 
But um, at any rate, right around that same time, to continue on that story a little bit, uh, well, in the department, lots of people knew about it cause, because I was bragging on it, you know, to people. And um, Kita, Toshi Kita, whom you guys have probably had here before, um, was really interested in it, and he, he said he knew this guy at Vector, Jim Whitehead or Whitehall or something. Vector made like the ABC kits or something. Vector made the ABC kit, and he said, I'm going to talk to him about making something that will only be injected with positive charge. Mm -hmm. And he said, and, he'll, and that would be interesting. Would you want to be, in, would you be interested in that? And I said, yeah, I'd definitely be interested in that. And so that's how Neurobiotin was developed. It was this interaction between Kita and this guy. I didn't ever actually even ever talk to this guy. Well, I so, it wasn't patentable. Why? Because it was around. It was already around. Already. It's a natural, uh, first of all, it's a natural, it's a natural molecule. It's found in yeast and some other, you know, lower life form, single cell things. And um, uh, it's not found in mammals that I, I don't, I'm not positive about that. So I don't think it isn't found in mammals in any form. So you had a really earnest disclaimer in that first paper about how the both negative and positive yeah. currents actually cause ejection. But it, so that was '88 that that paper came out, that and then by '94, I think you guys had the neurobiotin ready to go. No, I think it was earlier. Earlier than that, I think so. I'd have to go back and look. I think it might have. So it was a pretty quick. It was very quick after that, actually. It was, and. Um, so this but you, guy, even though uh, even though this led to a patentable product, neither you nor Kita got any part of the intellectual property. I don't think Kita did. So Tennessee I can't say for sure. I never asked him. Well, I how does, how does the university feel about that? But that time, the university had no. It wasn't like it. It wasn't like universities. Now they jumped. Aware of intellectual yeah. property. <laughs> but Neurobiotin was sent for us to for testing. And, and Kita, to his credit, you know, wanted me to be involved in it. And he had a guy working in his lab who did a, a bunch of the initial testing. Who I did, did not make it on the paper. It was Nakanishi. Uh -huh. Remember Nakanishi? Sure. It's an outstanding North Physical. He tested some of it. But then Kita and I decided that, that we wanted, you know, one of the problems with biocytin was if you went up to a concentration like 4% that was, um, was giving us the best fills. It was still kind of high. And um, we, the electrodes became, at that point, they started to get a little too resistive, and we thought they were changing their properties. And, and Kita decided that we should measure the linearity, the response of the electrodes, um, over uh, different concentrations and compare biocytin with neurobiotin. So that actually ends up in that, in that paper. And neurobiotin is a smaller molecular weight. It did seem to be kinder on the electrodes, actually, than, than what do you use now? biocytin. I use biocytin. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, um, neurobiotin had a problem with it for intracellular—not a huge problem, but for putting in a patch bypass, it had chloride. So um, you can get in places even like um, that. Not what's the big, the big company that sells like Fura and all that stuff. What is that company? You know what I'm talking about? They sell everything. They sell Fura uh, probes. Molecular probes. Um, they'll, they'll send you a chloride-free um, kind of neurobiotin thing. They don't call it neurobiotin. They, 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 I don't know what they call it. But it's not biocytin. But um, the, the, the advantage of that one is it's a little, it's a little smaller even yet. It's like uh, three, some, maybe even smaller than 300. I can't remember what neurobiotin is. It's a smaller molecular weight. It's, uh, it was, we did find that it was only injected with positive charge which Kita thought was good for what he was interested in it for. And the reason is because when you hyperpolarize cells, I ha our cells routinely, we had to hyperpolarize them if we wanted to keep them. And you'd hyperpolarize them, and then you'd watch them, and then the memory potential would just go as fast as it could go to, you know, past, you know, whatever, like you were going to kill a cell, and you had to hurry up and let it off. But we, if we didn't do that, apply that current, and keep it below spiking, threshold, it was hard to keep the cells. So that would inject cells. Yeah, the procedure and the procedure would inject the cells. often included yeah. some yeah. constant hyperpolarization in the beginning, which you would gradually right. remove. And so if you lost that cell in a minute, you were done with that side of your slice. You're done with it. You probably already stained that cell. You probably already stained so you're going to have a point. confusing mm -hmm. mess of stained cells yeah. all along your track, mm -hmm. yeah. and then finally somewhere there's the real one that you right. really recorded. Right, that's right. And so... Um, that all seemed to work pretty good, and uh, and and Keita also in this paper wanted to inject it as a tracer too, 
and it does work over short distances for track tracing, but not over long distances. It, appears it was very to be, popular for a while. Though. Yeah, it appears to be degraded, and that and that led to actually the biotinylate dextrans, which somehow the biotinylation onto dextran, the, the biotin is not degraded and is really good for anterograde tracing. I mean, it's one of the best anterograde tracers, for example. And neurobiotin was only useful really for short projections. But did, people did use it that way for a while. Um, so after that, it was not long after that, we did some studies where we, we looked at the morphology of the cells and then we started doing immunochemistry and started comparing vasopressin and oxytocin cells. And, uh, and still, that's what we still do. We just do it in patch by pets now. The experience of somebody who like discovers uh, some valuable technique like this is uh, often uh, full of humorous anecdotes about people who use your technique and call you up and tell you that it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't work. work. That happened a lot, actually. One of the guys that called me <laughs> had talked to you, and um, and he was. I forget what he was working on and whether it was, I think I'm thinking of two other people. One is an invertebrate person. This is a guy I don't think was invertebrate. He called me up and he said, so are you the guy that did this by side thing? And he kind of a surly attitude. And I said, yeah, this is me. And he goes, yeah, Wilson says you walk on water. So here's my problem. He said that. Actually. He said, so Wilson says you walk on water. Here's my problem. So he started explaining how it didn't work. And actually, Phil Schwartzkrant, I remember, came by the poster one time and was telling me that, or not, it wasn't it wasn't him. It was the uh, Sharfman, Helen Sharfman, who was working in his lab, saying they had they had they were having a problem getting it to work. I don't really know why they ended up publishing with it, but at that time they weren't. This other guy, I'm not even sure what he was doing. Another person called me up and said, "I'm putting the I'm putting it on my nerve of the cockroach, something or other, some invertebrate thing." I'm sticking it in the refrigerator, and uh, it, it crystallizes, and, and it doesn't work. Nothing transports. It doesn't work like cobalt or some of these other things. And I said, oh. She goes, well, why, why doesn't it work? And I said, well, crystallization could be a clue to that. <laughs> not, you're putting in too much, and I don't really know if it even should work in your, in your situation. I don't really know what it should do. I don't know if people ever ended up using it for inverted stuff. I love the kind of response, like, I'm using your method and it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. You say, well, did you do this? Did you do that? No, I didn't do any of those steps. I figured they weren't important. <laughs> I still have this issue. So you asked me about the, you asked me earlier about this paper with the, the array, right? So the student, that student, this is another good example. And it's, it's a... So say what that thing a, is. We, do we want to say or do you want to... It's a published paper. paper. It is a published paper. I don't even know what, what you should call it. I mean... It is a micro mirror way. It has like a thousands, hundreds of thousands of mirrors, <laughs> and like it PSD has a high resolution, temporal. high resolution for illuminating by just in the mirror. Uh, you can illuminate these spots that are, you know, sub hundred micron uh, illumination spots, and so you can do that in any kind of pattern depending on the software that controls these mirrors. Um, and you can you could do three here, or you can do a pattern of four here. And there. But it's pretty baroque the software that that Jason wrote to do this. But you could have a little. You could make a little movie. You could have show gonna, Steamboat Willie. We're going to have to do something uh, on the slides or something <laughs> like could, that. You yeah. could do that. It's pretty powerful. <laughs> but at any rate, the story related by Sidon is that this is Dateliff Hex Lab, and Dateliff is an in, in vivo extracellular guy. Cerebellar guy, but he hadn't done any intracellular. And so they wanted to do intracellular recording from cortical slices and stimulate one layer and record in the other layer. Okay? And, uh, and so they said, we're going to, we want to do this by sign thing. And so I set up a little small protocol, percentage of putting the pie patch, pie pad, blah, 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 blah. So I saw Jason about a month later in the hallway. How's it working? Oh, it doesn't work. I can't get anything. It doesn't work. And I said, really? It doesn't work. And he said, no. And I said, did you do this? No. Did you do that? No. I said, I read this other paper. That's exactly what he told me. And I said, okay, next time you do an experiment, I'll come up and watch you. And then when you're done, I'll take your slice. So he did the experiment. You didn't tell him, why don't you call that guy? No. No. He's a student. I didn't want to. And so, uh, and actually, there's even more iterations in this. But he... Uh, so he called me up and said, I have a slice. So I brought some fix up to him. I took a slice away from him. And the next day I gave it back to him with a filled neuron. And I said, you're doing it right. It's really working. 
Well, why didn't that work for me? I don't know. You told me you did this and this and this that this other guy's paper said, but I, I really don't know what you really did because you didn't follow my protocol. I mean, the protocol's easy. I mean, it's extremely easy. You fill the cell, fix the slice, and then put ABC on it. That's all you had to do, you know? But he did something wrong. <laughs> Maybe he got two of those steps right. <laughs> I still don't know what he did wrong, but he did it wrong again, and he went to another paper. After that, he st I had to do this twice. I had to get the slices from him twice. And then he finally started, he finally agreed that that would be okay. To follow the protocol. Follow <laughs> protocol. <laughs> but this is a typical graduate student. Well, this is not unusual at all. I had a really I've had it down in my lap. Who still, who still uh, makes a joke about something I told him one time. It was, he had, it might even been biocytin staining, and he had a protocol to follow. And he was telling me it didn't work. And I said, well, try it again. And he tried it again. And he says, it still doesn't work. And I said, well, okay, let's look at what you did. And we lo we're looking at the protocol. And we we're going down each of the steps. And he said, no, I thought that step was probably not important. Or I didn't do that. And I didn't do that. <laughs> I said, well, okay. So now here's the thing. From now on, when you get a brand new protocol, you do it exactly what it says. If it says, hold your head a little bit to the right while you're doing this step. Hold your head a little bit to the right while you're doing that step. And then after it's working, you could try holding your head in a different position and see if it matters. Because what you think is important isn't what's important. That's obvious, you know. Mm -hmm. And so now, and of course, soon it was working, and I saw him. He's now a professor somewhere and a very successful guy. And, and, uh, and I was visiting him. And he was talking to his student, and he, he looked over at me and he said to, to his student, no, no, I was hearing him, if you, if it says hold your head a little bit to the right, you got to hold your head a little bit to the right. We remember Joe Shu. Joe Shu, yeah, okay. So the point is there were lots of early adopters, and the technique has been a great success. Yeah, I mean, I think it helped, I'll be honest, it helped being in that department because it was full of people that wanted to do that kind of study. The, you know, it's... To, to get the cell that they had recorded from and look at its morphology and make sure they had the right cell or maybe a new cell type or study some other aspect of it. So Charlie used it a lot. Kita did use it a lot. Um, Katai's lab adopted it. Katai, who was my chairman at the time, called me up one day and, and asked me if I would read this chapter he was writing about biocidin. And I said, uh, okay. So, right. you, know, you probably know this story too, right? I think so I've heard the story. It wasn't really quite about biocytin, but, but he did that to, to, uh, to poke me. So I did read the chapter, and he did have some stuff on biocytin in there. And he did cite me. It wasn't like he didn't cite it, but it was like, we do it for this, and we did it for that. And he said, you approve of all that? I said, yeah, it looks fine. And he said, okay. And it was, you know, it was the Katai lab starting with HRP and moving on to moving on to biocidin. But it was since he was a pioneer in intracellular staining, he, he continued to get yes. a little bit of credit for everything that happened in the department. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that was okay too. But it was most, you know, the thing that I think that's most rewarding about it is that um, I compared the number of citations of biocidin with the number of hits of biocidin in papers. Okay. So uh, that you can do that. It's easy to do. The citations are in the hundreds, but it's not like over a thousand or anything like that. But the number of times it's used is just like, it's huge. And most of the time, a couple, every now and then I'll just open the paper up and read what it says. And it says, we've put this much biocidin in there and why we went with it. So at some point, it's not a citable thing yeah, anymore. It's yeah. just a common. But, but I think that, that's when you know you made it, right? Yeah, right. You don't make you it. Don't that way. I mean, it's like Lowry got cited for what was it? Um, yeah, protein or what? What was the Lowry measure? It was a what stain was, for gels, I think. <laughs> it was a stain for gels. It was the most cited stuff in the world, but nobody cares. Like we don't that, do you know? that anymore. We don't. We don't like every time I do intracellular recording. I don't necessarily cite or anything they know. Or some or exactly. whoever I actually Yeah, what's, what's the sort of time frame? That, did you see them drop off after They dropped off pretty rapidly for <clears> some, for years some people. Something? And I think part of the thing is there was a, we were not the first piece in person, pe first people to use it in patch, okay? Because we didn't, I didn't publish a paper on, on patch until 99, I think was our first paper. So 11 years afterwards. But early on, uh, and I think um, Laturco and, um, those guys in California were, who was in, what lab was Laturco in? Um, 
gosh, I'm trying to think. It was, I don't know if it was uh, Prince's department or not. It might have been. At any rate, these guys were, it was one of the first patch clamp papers in the slice, patch clamp in the slice papers. Do you remember that? Blind patch, stuff like that. I don't think it was Mark Blanton and I think Leturco. Anyway, anyway, early on, those guys put Biocytin in there. And I'm not even sure in that paper whether they cited our paper. They might have. But at any rate, once they put that in the patch pipette, that was different. You know, you could use it a lot lower concentration. And then that was a different technique, you know. That's Biocytin in the patch. It's and you're definitely going to say in every single cell because there's no hope. There's no hope then. Control it. Yeah. So that might be one reason. Um, I'm, you know, it's just, it's nice that it, that it There's some, worked it out. just has to do with the five phases of discovery. And mm. I don't remember them all, but there's like, the first one is denial. <laughs> it, it's not really a discovery, it's not really true. And then... These are by other people it's just accepting we, a discovery? This is yeah. how we accept any new right. piece of information. Okay. First we claim it isn't true, and now I'm, now I'm stuck because I need to remember all of them. Yeah, let's the make a mess. The very last... Sounds like the whole thing about death. The very last bargaining in, and this discovery is, is that everybody says it's obvious. Right? Mm -hmm. like, first they say it's not true, and then they say it's only true part of the time, and then they say it's true, but they discovered it, and <laughs> and then finally they say everybody always knew this, yeah. and and that's that's the way it's supposed to end. So I wonder if it's the same <laughs> trend for HRP. Did you do the same analysis of the HRP literature? Um, that's a good question, but I don't know the answer. In to that. HRP, I, there was I, not a single well-established. There were three or four people who discovered HRP. There were three uh, papers in one year. There were right. three papers in 1976, and they all claimed to have have so discovered no HRP. Ownership. And basically, everybody accepted all three yeah. claims because mm -hmm. they were apparently independently done. Yeah. One was Jankowska, and Jankowska, and then Pearl, was in a Pearl and uh, guys in. Um, so the one I remember is called Heim Kellerth. That's the Jankowska. Yeah, Kellerth. That's, yeah, that so. was in Jankowska's Yeah, lab. yeah. And uh, Key Tai, and then the other one was in Ed Pearl's in, lab. Ed Pearl's lab, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so, back, so back on this theme of innovation um, and building the tools that you need to solve a particular question, yeah. is it right to say, this is going way back in your career, um, is it right that you and Glenn Hatton, you guys actually created the hypothalamic slice yes, prep? The explant, the explant and the slice. Yeah, Glenn did thing. it first in Gary Lynch's lab. So I was telling Charlie this story today, and I think he might have known it before. But when I was a graduate student, my mentor uh, was counting nucleoli in these neurons and wanted me to count the nucleoli in the amygdala because he thought they could be an, it was an, it could be used as an index of activation. Think of it as like a FOSS, only before people knew about FOSS. Because in, in our system, if you, if you like look at a lactating rat versus a virgin rat, or you dehydrate an animal and look at vasopressin cells, you see this, they, the cells get bigger, but they multiply their nucleoli. They have two nucleoli. They can have, I should say. I see. Nobody so knows how that gets traditionally how a that measure of just how many cells there were, but in this case, yeah. it wasn't. It was yeah. a measure of how many So Because it turned out these guys have often have multiple nucleoli, sometimes more than two, but usually only when activated. But there is a baseline level of cells that have that. And so, but I thought that was really boring. I looked up nucleoli and it talked about histones and things like that, and I didn't want to just sit there and count these things, and I didn't, I just wasn't that interested in it. And I struggled with what I was going to do, and I started looking at the superchiasmatic nucleus for my, and I was looking at its changes over the diurnal cycle. And, uh, that's what I did my master's on. And then I threw in some superoptic in that, counted nucleoli in there and stuff. And sure, they changed over that. But I clearly didn't want to do that anymore. And anyway, right around that time, Glenn had become enamored with Gary Lynch. Gary is a very magnetic personality, if you've never heard him talk or anything like that. And they were on study section together, NSF study section. And Lynch was doing hypothalamic, I mean, hippocampal slices. And, and uh, Glenn said, could we do that in hypothalamus? I have this nucleus that I want to see if it's an osmoreceptor. This is super early in slices. Yeah, super early. early mid people claim to have invented, yeah. and that were invented in a bunch of places simultaneously yeah. or almost simultaneously. Yeah, exactly. And Gary's was one of Gary's the early ones. So we're talking about the mid-70s? How, how, well, the we... first slices that were used were for biochemistry. This guy, a guy named McElwain, and he 
I don't know if he's really the first, but he gets credited for making a chopper that everybody used back then, including Gary, uh, to make the slices. So it was a razor blade on a, like a guillotine with a spring. And you stack, 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 and had a micrometer, and you could cut pretty reliably 400 micron sections. But it could be kind of traumatic as well. But so McElwain did that, and the first slice prep I know about uh, was a Japanese guy. Um, and he also is credited for making the first. ACSF that was used for brand slices too. Everybody always used to say Yamamoto's media. Remember yeah. that? That's right. So, um, and about was, the same time, Per Anderson. Per Anderson. And about the same time, Gary right. Lynch. The Gary Lynch, right, that's right. So, anyway, uh, you know, Gary's a hipster, and so Glenn, and Glenn is the most conservative guy you've ever met, with a short haircut and, and listen to classical music and stuff. And, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that, but. He went out there, and he, you had to be in his lab before and after to know because he was a taskmaster, he worked really hard. That didn't really change, but it was his style of interaction with people. He came back, he had a lab meeting after Gary, and when he was out there, he called me and he says, it's working, it's pretty good, we're getting high flying slices. I said, does the experiment work? And he goes, I think it's doing what I want it to, I think it's working. You know, he was changing the osmolality in the static bath. On this uh, but he was seeing uh, spontaneous activity in the Seeing spontaneous activity that in the slice. Really, that was really what was critical. cool. Yeah, it was critical. And uh, and then, um, he's, he's, so he was really excited about that, and he came back. But wait, one, one time while he was there, he <laughs> called you and asked, and, and said that the lab was like completely deserted, and he didn't know what had happened to the lab, and asked you, what is what does it mean, Grateful Dead? <laughs> Apparently, the whole lab was not to a Grateful, to a grateful concert. Dead concert. And he didn't know what was happening. He came into work. Nobody was there. Yeah. It's not on the calendar. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. It was so, so California, so lunch. So, um, when he came back, he had a lab meeting. And with me and every, you know, all the whole, everybody in the lab. And he just looked at us and he goes, I had a really good time on this sabbatical. And I'm gonna, we're, gonna, we're just going to do different things from here on out. We're going to totally change what we're doing. And he said, I'm going to start these slices. We'll get that going pretty soon. I want to start track tracing experiments. Um, somebody needs to start injecting HRP in this place and that place. And we'd nobody, We hadn't done any of that stuff. We were still counting the clay lie or measuring urine or something like that. And um, I was just stunned. I, was just, I couldn't understand it. And then the last thing he said was, and by the way, I don't want any more of this Dr. Hatton stuff. You call me Glenn from here on out. Wow, Age of Aquarius. Yeah. <laughs> you had to just know him before and after. He actually didn't change that much in terms of the way he interacted with people in a way, but he was, he was more... Uh, I benefited from this change because I was, at that time, a pretty young student. Most of his other guys were older and they, they were getting ready to go and they had seen the sort of, you know... You know how it is when, when you have a really motivated, hardworking guy and he wants everybody to work the same, and it's, sometimes it's hard to get your students to work that hard. And Glenn really did work hard. I mean, you'd go home for dinner, and you're expected to be back in the lab by 8, doing something. Studying, hopefully, because you weren't supposed to study during the day. I remember he wouldn't let you, you go, go to the library class. during the day. Hmm? You couldn't go to the library during no. the day. No, I had to go to the library at night. Uh -huh. And, and that the only time that changed was we, he asked me to write a chapter with him. And then he would say, "You need to go to the library." <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, we did. So we came back and we got a chopper. Slice? I mean, yeah. everybody's doing slices, or no, that was just your problem. That was me and Glenn. And Bill Gregory came on later, but it was uh, it was just he and I in the beginning. And we did most of our slices. We started doing them during the week, but everybody was really busy. I was doing my thesis and everything like that, so we switched to weekends. And so Saturday was slice day. And uh, which was irritating to me sometimes because I wanted to go to a football game, but it turned out that he was a football fan, had tickets, so he usually this is Michigan, Michigan, Michigan State, Michigan State. Yeah. yeah, Michigan State. <laughs> so we did slices on Saturdays, and um, and it was great actually. And it was another thing that worked right away. But what didn't work was you could, we could never get any activity from Supra Optic. We couldn't even poke a cell and make it fire mechanically, and. The, and and uh, the, the chopper, the brain was optic track down this way. Chopper would come down and hit the optic track. And so that was the last thing? That, that was the last thing it cut. We think it traumatized it or something because we just could never get... And the, the first, So the first slice recordings of Super Optic were not done by Glenn. They were done by Bill Mason, who you know, in right. Cambridge. And, um, and he was using a vibratone. And uh, we got all kinds of activity from paraventricular, but super optic was just dead. 
totally dead. And so we switched. Um, actually, Glenn switched to a Vibratome after I left. We were, he was still using the chopper when I was still there. So you just never flipped the brain upside down. We never, we never thought to flip it upside down, you know. And I still don't like to cut the, when we do slices, I don't like to cut the optic track first either that way. So I couldn't have imagined that could have been better. To hit it first. Mm -hmm. There's all that dura that you can't very easily get off of the body. You have to take it off, and um, and if you strip too much of it off, you could actually damage the dendrites because yeah. the dendrites in the superoptic go right into the peel interface. In fact, a lot of pia and astroglia kind of intermingle down there. There's a kind of zone, yeah. the, the the top layer of which is mostly dendrites, and then right underneath that is this really heavily invested peel glial interface thing. And so if you start to take, and we had to do that for this explant, we had to carefully take the dura off or we couldn't get our sharp electrodes in there. Um, but you could not remove PIA. You had to be careful not to move the, remove the PIA. So, what was your connection to those guys at Babraham? There was a whole uh, hypothalamus group there. It was, it was, was a really, really good place. For this is Oxford, right? The Baber, Babraham Institute? Cambridge. 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 Cambridge was the Animal Institute at, at Babraham. Which was part of Cambridge University. Well, they were just in on it early. They, the guys. But you went there. Glenn mm -hmm. went there. Both Glenn went there. Um, I went. I visited there. I did not go there to work. Um, so what happened is Glenn, when when the slice thing came out and he, we published our first paper, he was asked <coughs> to give a talk at a meeting over there in England, and so he met a bunch of these people, and the result of that was that. Two or three people came back and visited. One was this guy Dreyfus, who I had to do a postdoc with. Another guy was this guy Jonathan Wakerley, who was the first guy to record from anadromic oxytocin cells in the lactating rat. I mean, the seminal papers that kind of set the field for, for, for decades. And he was a really interesting guy. He came. He wanted to. He wanted to just see what we were doing, learn the slice. He did adopt the slice. Didn't do that much stuff with it. But he also showed us how to do anadromic uh, identification, which was pretty interesting. Uh -huh. and, uh, and we did that all in one afternoon with him. And then um, I mean, he put the electrode in the pituitary, we cannulated, I think we had a female that lactate mat, we cannulated the mammary gland, he showed us how you could you know, calibrate it with an oxytocin injection, and, uh, and then we got a, an electrode and got, it, got a few cells and we anadromically identified one. I thought, well, this is what I'm going to do, but I never did that. So, very complicated, perhaps. Very cool. When I went to Switzerland, and we did lactate. We were interested in the pathways that the afferent pathways to that controlled it from because because this bursting pattern is not only something you only see during lactation. You only see it when the pups are attached. You don't see it if you take the pups off. It'll just stop. Put them back on. Wait five minutes or so. Boom! It just starts up again. It just starts up. And um, so we were doing this study where we were making lesions in different places around the, in the brain stem because there had been evidence that that area was really critical. And we were making lesions in the spinal cord, like dorsal columns versus lateral columns. This is to block the block sensory pathway. Yeah, and then we were putting tracers in to, in these diff different regions to see where they projected in the hopes that, like we German gluten HRP, in the hopes that we could see that one of these places was actually projecting to our, our nuclei, superoptic nuclei. And nothing did, but the brain, the, this midbrain area, you can make a really small lesion in the intercollicular zone of the midbrain, and you can totally block the reflex. It's probably blocking some pathway, but more recently people have actually seen that if you do ibotenic acids there, you get the same effect. And also, you FOS, you can see FOS activation in this region as well. So it may be doing and it's something. A, more than we you, thought. It's a, a anonymous region. It's, you it's not anonymous because we wouldn't even recognize. No, it's, it is intercollicular, but there are a couple of nuclei: external nucleus of intercolliculus. Um, what's the name of the other one? Parallel nucleus, which is a little more ventral, but part of it goes up that. And then there's a third one that's in that region. They all could have been somehow affected by these lesions. Yeah. So, but when we trace axons from those regions, both in the damaged animals and just putting regular stuff, we would we would dump HRP in there after we made a lesion just because we knew it was picked up by cut axons and we would trace them that way and then sometimes we'd just inject WG, WGA HRP in there. And we got projections of hypothalamus from there but mostly lateral hypothalamus, fields of florel and zona inserta but not to superoptic or PDF. Mm -hmm. And it's still to this date unknown exactly which what the pathway What the total pathway is. Because there's a sensory component, essential sensory so there's component. There's essential a sensory component, absolutely essential. So 
what we did there was we, we cannulated mammary glands and watched, and you can see the periodic release. You can see it. You don't have to record from the neurons to see it. And you can measure its frequency and amplitude as a function of, like, number of pops. Or you can, we know it's a contralateral pathway if you lesion one side and just and put rats on the opposite side that's totally blocky, put them on the same side as the lesion, they lactate just fine. That, that's been done. We didn't do that, but that had been done. That wasn't what we were doing, but... At any rate, um, so Dreyfus was... That was a guy who came to visit the lab and wanted to start slices in his lab, too. And he did. He started slices. And then another guy that came was in Bloom's lab. His name was Quentin Pittman. And he was in Floyd Bloom's lab, and he came and visited um, when I was at last year at my graduate school and learned the slices and then take it, took it back to... To there, so it was you know it had a good influence on things. We, the slides tell Charlie today that it was a very uh, Lynch's chamber was a static bath, so um, and they didn't care apparently in hippocampus. And so we were Glenn's idea was we want to change osmolality, so how are we going to do that in a static bath? So he had this Harvard syringe pump, and he would just put the media that he wanted to put in there in this one, and then have another syringe pull it out, you know, you've seen these print syringe pumps, right? So push pull, and that would change it. And we we did it slow enough so that it didn't disrupt the slice. And we were, and he would say, well, we're going to start with our 290 milliosmos and we'll change it to 320 or 310 or something like that. So we were doing that and it was affecting some cells and he was all excited about that. Oh, the, the actual osmolarity was yeah. not important, so it, you, you, the mixing was not an issue. You, you, it was just a change in osmolarity. Really. That's right. We were just trying I mean, to change the The question is whether the cells themselves were osmos receptive or whether they got some yeah. input that was from osmos. Yeah. So this is a, yeah, right. This is a whole other. This is not about lactate. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. This has to do with the slice. Yeah. This has to do with why he we started working on the slices. So the, yeah, the issue was whether are these neurons really osmosensitive or even osmoreceptive? That is, if you block all their synaptic inputs, do they change their membrane potential with with os It turns out the answer is yes, but we didn't demonstrate that. We did demonstrate that you could change the firing rate of them. But um, as I was telling Charlie, we we were sitting there thinking about this bath one time, and I think the I don't know who the first person was to do it, but we had osmometers and we had a we had a Westcore osmometer that would take microliter quantities and we thought oh this would be great we'll be able to verify what we're doing and we'll see we'll just take the, a sample right out of the chamber and measure the osmolality so we did that and the, the baseline osmolality when we started the experiment was 400 and something and our high osmotic stimulus that we were putting in was uh, 310 or 320 we said well it's 400 what do you mean it's 400 it was 290 when we started well it's a static bath it evaporated Slices seem to like that. They seem to like that whole oxygen interface, so they'd almost, it wouldn't dry down. You couldn't let them dry down. There was a net, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen these chambers or not, but there was a net, and, which was made of monofilament hose that you bought at a woman's stocking store. Yeah. That was critical. It had to be monofilament. And um, so, a long story short, is Glenn Wan published this paper. I can say this now, may he rest in peace. Um, he died, unfortunately. Prematurely, really, because he was still very active in science um, a few years ago. But you know, he 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 wanted to just say we changed the osmolality, and I said, well, we know that's not right. I mean, we measured the osmolality. You know, the osmolality is actually going from four hundred something to three twenty. So you're actually decreasing it. You're getting. He said, but it's still changing. And I said, okay, then write it that way, just like that. You know, and I don't know why we. He was so in such a big hurry to get it out because it was the first slice thing. That he was, he, he focused more on the spontaneous activity. We did see this phasic bursting activity. I think finding the phasic bursting yeah. in it was more slice critical. Is a, was, it was a huge finding. Yeah. It was a huge finding. Slices at that time were all dead quiet. Yeah. And that yeah. was okay with some people, yeah. but it wasn't going to be any good for the hypothalamus world. And it was great because we could, we, we could get cells. Back then, one of the games we'd play is we'd get a cell, we weren't really. We just wanted to see its pattern, but we got into this idea of how long can we hold a cell. And so these phasic cells were cool because they'd fire and then they'd stop and then you'd think, have I lost it? You'd be waiting around and then a minute later it'd start, it'd fire another burst again. You'd hear that on the audio monitor and it would do that. And so that was really cool. And so I remember going home one time for dinner, leaving an electrode in there. 
and coming back. And I still had the cell. Well, maybe it was a different cell, but it acted like that. <laughs> so we had this we had this contest about how long you could hold cells. And you, in this static bath, you can really hold them for a long time. The 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 slices seemed healthy, despite the fact that osmolality was. And it took it took other people to do it right. Bill Mason was the first guy to do it and show they were directly osmosensitive. And then the, a guy, another guy I know, is really good neuroscientist. Charles Bork has made a whole career of this. He knows the mechanism. Stretch an activated mechanoreceptor. Um, he's done incredible work. You know, he takes takes the cells out, dis dissociates them, patches onto them, changes minutely changes their size. You know, shrinks them, makes them bigger, and looks at single channel recordings. and And his, he knows that he knows what the channel is now. It's a it's a variant of a trip channel. I just want to end on a on, a, on this idea. You, so you you've written and talked about the slow acceptance of superoptic and PVN as um, fully neuronal. Uh -huh. So was that that was definitely perceptible to you as a grad student, at, at, or when you were doing these experiments in the late seventies? By that was time, it I, over at that point. I think it was over pretty much, but not that long over because it was sixty six before the first anadromic recordings were made in the in the superoptic of rat. So Candell's paper was 64. Um, late 60s, there was a kind of a flurry activity, and then in the early 70s, these guys did the, so the, did these anadromic things. But I, I've told this story to Charlie, too. There was even a, a holdout after the demonstration that they had electrical properties. So Joe Mides was a really famous neuroendocrinologist who was at Michigan State, the physiology department, I think. Maybe pharmacology, I can't remember. Physiology, I think. And he was a prolactin specialist. And so, you know, the, the way the other system works, the anterior lobe, which has all these other hormones in it, that works by inhibitory or excitatory factors, releasing factors or inhibitory factors, being released into the portal plexus and the external layer of the median eminence. And those things drift down portal vein into the anterior lobe, and then they act on the receptive cell. So, you know, you have, you have corticotropin releasing factor, which excites the release of ACTH, as an example, classic example. And so, and, and for prolactin, actually, they don't really know what the excitatory one is. They know the inhibitory one. It's dopamine from the arcuate nucleus. And so those guys all imagine that the median eminence is kind of a gland, that could operate independently even of its cell bodies, like in the arcuate. Back then, everybody thought the arcuate was the only contributor. And so they would take the median eminence out. Charlie called them median eminence guys, because one guy gave a talk one time, and, and you asked me about how can anybody be talking the way that guy is, and I said, he's, he's a median eminence guy. So they treat it like a gland. They take the median eminence out. It's just the terminals. They can keep it active for a long time. They can put all kinds of drugs on it and control the release of these releasing factors in there. And it, 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 at that level, it works. And there is, it turns out, a, a fair amount of so-called presynaptic control of the release. And so these end up being sort of like synaptosomes, basically. But John Wakerley, this guy who was the first guy to do this and uh, record from oxytocin neurons during lactation, showed that they were related to the milk ejection, and they were blah, blah, blah. And he had published, the time he came and visited us, he would published... You know, already hundreds, you know, ten papers at least on this, maybe maybe more, all in all in J Physiol, Journal of Endocrinology, all these good British journals, kind of thing. So he comes and gives this talk, and he he describes everything that they've been doing. He shows everything, and and when it's all done, and it's a great talk, and it's all done, people ask him questions. And Joe Mighty said, "Well, I, I have a question. What is the relationship between the electrical activity and the release of the hormone?" And it's like, everybody's kind of like, what? And uh, so Jonathan Wakenley very carefully said, oh, um, maybe I didn't explain that. The action potential travels down the axon, it invades the terminal, there's calcium influx, and the calcium influx induces the exocytosis of the, of the hormone from these dense core granules, and then they get released into... And the guy said, well, that's not the way it works in my field, you know, the, this external layer of the median eminence. Because as far as he was concerned, you could do everything he wanted with this synaptosome preparation. You didn't need any cell body. Cell body must be, must be ancillary. It must not be important. So even then, that was in the late 70s, there was this idea. 
And, and it's interesting, this guy Jeffrey Harris, I got fascinated, I was writing, I'm writing a chapter right now, I just finished. And so I got interested in the history of this acceptance again. I, it's the second time I've kind of been interested in it. And I never had read his take on it before. Because he he's big, he's huge. He was, he's the most famous neuroendocrinologist probably, really. And, um, and he, he did, he, he'd write all these things and he studied everything and he knew the hypothalamus was involved, he knew everything was important, he knew there was an innervation of the neural lobe that it was an innervation of it, that the nerves controlled it. But he would write uh, the origin of the actual hormone this, of the cell type within the neural lobe that, that contains oxytocin and vasopressin is still unknown. <laughs> and this is, this is literally, I think the Bargman Shar review paper of all their stuff came out in 51. You know, and that was a review of all these important stuff. And probably part of the reason that it wasn't accepted, it was done in invertebrates. I'm not invertebrates, in lower vertebrates. Anyway, scientific discovery isn't an advancing synchronous way. Right, that's true. It's like a, uh, it's all scattered with some people kind of out in front, some people lagging behind. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes uh, the guys out in front are exaggerating yeah. the result, and the guys lagging behind end up causing corrections that, Im that improve yeah. the outcome. Yeah, and, and one of the one of the you probably know Leontovich because I think she also did some Golgi studies. Oh yeah. Right. So she published one of the first Golgi papers of superoptic in dog puppy, she called it. And um, was puppy because you had to do probably the, was puppy. Yeah. You had to do that Golgi on immature immature animals. Yeah. Anyway, she uh, she described them. She's the one that described them as very primitive neuroblastoma-like cells. So that kind of stuff didn't help, and they. And they aren't, you know, they're not flashing neurons. They have one to two dendrites, three at most. Most often they don't have three. One to two, they're kind of bipolar, and they have a big cell body, and the branches, we've, we've filled a bunch of neurons, they average about eight branches, eight total branches, you know. So they're not heavily branching. The axons never collateralize that we see them. There's a big argument still about that. They do, when you get to the neural lobe, they bifurcate. But before that, there's not much. So they, they are kind of funky. You know, LHRH neurons are kind of like this. Yeah. You know, so Kelly's neurons. They have big, long, And GNRH neurons have basically one big dendrite and yeah. the axon going the yeah. other direction. and the axon going the other way. And those are really fascinating, too. You know, I think that's very cool. All right, so we look forward to next time, since this is uh, our second <laughs> visit. I'm sure there'll be a third. Um, Start thinking about what we're yeah. going to do that now. Yeah, there's always well, lots of ground much. to cover. Thanks for being with us, Bill. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Cool.